Hello, friends. Welcome. Oh my goodness. Today's episode. I love it so much. I love it so much. I'm chatting with Jennifer Ackerman, who has written a book called What an Owl Knows. And if you've been following me for any period of time, you know that I love birds. I specifically love raptors and corvids and owls are among the most fascinating birds. This is a conversation that you can enjoy, that your kids can enjoy. I hope you will learn something new about owls. So let's dive in. I'm Sharon McMahon, and here's where it gets interesting. I am very, very excited to be chatting with Jennifer Ackerman today. When I saw What an Owl Knows on a list of like upcoming releases, I was like, add to cart. I will be reading that book. <laughs> so thank you for being here today. It's such a delight. Thank you for having me. Well, owls are, I mean, they're some of the most fascinating animals on earth. And your book lays out a great case for why that is. I found them wildly interesting before I even read the book. But the more I read, the more fascinated I became. And the more I realized how little I actually knew. I am wondering, how did you become fascinated by owls? So, you know, I love birds, all birds. I started bird watching when I was a kid with my dad. And so I've written several books on birds, but this time I wanted to focus in on a family of birds or a group of birds and really take a kind of deep dive into their biology and behavior. And I thought, well, owls, you know, they're just so unique in the bird world. They're these weirdly skilled night hunters. They have this kind of eerie, quiet flight and these quite amazing senses. And humans have been obsessed with owls for literally tens of thousands of years. And they, you know, they show up in myths and stories and, and symbols and in cultures all around the world. So when I started to think about writing a book about owls, they really just made my head kind of sizzle with questions. I wanted to know what makes an owl an owl and, and you know, how did these birds get to be the way they are, which is so different from other birds. They're nocturnal creatures. Why are they active at night? They have this kind of reputation for being wise, but are they in fact smart birds? So I wanted to explore all of these questions and really find out what we know about owls. And it turns out we know quite a lot. The science of owls is really vast and quite fascinating, and we've been studying them for a very long time. But it's only, I think it's been lately, in the last decade or two, that there have been the kind of advances and technological breakthroughs that we need to solve some of the mysteries that have been around for centuries. And so it made it a really good time to write the book. Totally. One of the things that I found interesting right away at the beginning of the book is you talk about human-owl interaction and how humans for hundreds and hundreds of recorded years of history have been fascinated and obsessed by owls. Owls live on every continent except for Antarctica. And so they appear in so many human stories. And they represent a variety of different things. As you mentioned, they represent wisdom. Sometimes they represent cunning or they're harbingers of evil. They take on other meanings in, in a variety of human contexts. And sure, there are animals throughout the animal kingdom that mean things to different human civilizations. But owls being on every continent means that unlike a whale, for example, 
you know, if you are from a place that has no, is not a coastal culture, whales are not going to be meaningful in your culture. Whereas throughout the millennia, owls have been meaningful to a wide variety of human cultures. I would love for you to just give people a little overview of the types of meanings that owls have taken on in terms of human civilization throughout time. Yeah, so it's a really great question. And I just want to say first that humans really have been obsessed with owls for literally tens of thousands of years. Among the oldest examples of cave art that's that have, has ever been discovered is an, actually an etching of an owl. And it's in the Chauvet Cave of France. It's from 36,000 years ago. So some person, some ancient relative of ours, wandered deep into this cave and etched this beautiful illustration of an owl. So it was not a casual drawing. This bird apparently even then has kind of invested with symbolism and maybe some spiritual meaning. We don't know. But now, you know, all over the world, as you said, owls really appear in our stories, in our myths, our symbols, and sometimes they're symbols of wisdom and good fortune, like with the Greeks, and sometimes they're seen as witches and emblems of evil, omens of death. That's a very common one. And I think it's really a combination of things that makes these birds so powerful. They're present everywhere on the planet except Antarctica. So we see them, but we don't see them a lot. You know, they have this very mysterious quality. Also, we kind of see ourselves in them. You know, they have these round heads and forward-facing eyes. And some species of owls are are almost baby-like in their appearance. But they're also so incredibly different from us. You know, they're these winged creatures of the night, and they're very fierce hunters. They're kind of very mysterious and uncanny. And, And I think it's that whole package of the the very kind of cute and familiar and the brutal and strange that makes these birds so exciting and and sometimes really very troubling to a lot of cultures. Yeah, I mean you even see owls associated in the United States in modern day with like Halloween. It's like a ooh the owls and the bats. I think some of it, of course, is the fact that many species, talk about this in the book, are not nocturnal. Some of them are more nocturnal than others, although there's a lot of hunting that happens at dusk, you also mentioned. So that might be part of it. But it is funny that other species of like aggressive, creepy birds that are amazing hunters, you know, like an eagle, for example, not associated with Halloween. It's the owl. And I, there is just something about them that I think, again, the fact that they're out at night, but the fact that they're so mysterious and they don't really want you to notice them. Unlike you can drive around rural America and be like, oh, there's 14 bald eagles. Owls, on the other hand, they're so much more elusive. And I think that adds to the mystery. I think you're absolutely right. They are so well camouflaged. They see you before you see them. And also, they appear and disappear absolutely quietly. You know, they have this very eerie, silent flight. And things are not supposed to just appear and disappear without making some noise. And I think it is why owls have this tremendous association with spirits. They seem almost magical, like their ability to appear and disappear. You can understand how humans would have interpreted that as supernatural or magical in some way. Like, where did you come from? 
Yes, absolutely. There's a woman who was interviewed, a scientist did a a kind of massive study and interviewed lots of people about their attitudes towards owls. And one Brazilian woman was asked why her culture and liked owls. And she said, well, it's because they enchant the landscape. And I think that's really true. There's just a sense of magic, as you say, and enchantment. And it's very unique in the bird world, I think. We just don't have those kinds of of associations with, with other kinds of birds. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com I think there's also something about the sounds owls make that is also so unique. They don't sing. They make a variety of sounds, which you talk about in the book too, that it's not just like, ooh, the sound that we associate with owls. They make a huge variety of sounds, but there's something about their sound that almost sounds human. Like they're asking a question in English almost. <laughs> Do owls speak English, Jennifer? <laughs> well, you know, you think about you think about an owl like the barred owl, which has that very famous call, which is like sounds just like who cooks for you. <laughs> and sometimes they have hoots and calls that sound like human screams. There's an owl called the barking owl, which literally barks like a dog. I mean, I first heard this owl. I was in the the Pelaga Forest in Eastern Australia with a wildlife sound recording specialist. And we were in the middle of the woods and it was night and I, I hear this barking. And I said, well, who has got their dog out here right now? And he said, oh, that's no dog. That's, that's a barking owl. So they have this tremendous range of, as you say, you know, sometimes human-like calls. The sooty owl has a, a call like a sliding whistle. It goes, and it's just this weird sound. So yeah, they're not songsters like our uh, little warblers and chickadees and things. Yeah. I live in a rural area that's highly forested. And most of my property is forest. And we have quite a few owls on our property. And 
last winter, I started noticing when I was up early before dawn, sitting in my little chair by the fireplace, and sometimes it gets a little too hot by the fireplace, even though it's cold outside, so I would crack the window open a little bit. But I started noticing that almost every morning, if I cracked that window open, there was an owl in the maple tree outside that window that I could hear almost every day. And there was just something so... I mean, magical is the wrong word, but that is almost how it felt. Like I'm sitting here in the dark by the fire, listening to my owl friend outside my window. And it certainly knew I was there, but there was still something about like that made them sit in the tree outside my window. And just listening to their calls was really, it was a really wonderful experience to me to be able to do that all winter. Yeah, it's almost like a visitation, isn't it? You know, I had a a little eastern screech owl that roosted in a box behind my house in a maple tree, and it would roost with just its little head in the round hole of the box all day long, you know, just this little, little funny face there. And then at night, it would leave and never saw it come and go, but I could hear it at night. But, you know, the variety of calls that owls make, you know, most of us just know the hoot of an owl. It's it's one of the few bird calls most people know. And those are really territorial calls. So I think about that, that owl that you had next to the window was probably marking the boundaries of its territory and might have even seen you. And I don't know. This is my maple tree. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're highly territorial and the way that they protect their turf is through hooting, you know, which is a much better strategy than an actual physical battle. Because if you think about it, the risk of injury is so high for an owl. If, you, if they get a, a talon in the eye or something, it's really game over. So it makes sense that they battle vocally rather than physically. And they actually, they begin vocalizing in the egg, which was fascinating <gasps> to me, even before they hatch. Yeah couple of days ahead of hatching, the chicks break into their little air cell in the egg and they begin breathing air. And that's when they start vocalizing. So you can actually hear their little chitters inside the egg. Oh, that's so cute. Well, I loved your chapter about what it is like to be an owl. And of course, as much as we would love to be able to go into the mind of an owl and be like, when I entered the mind of an owl for three hours, here's what I realized. But this is really more about like what science has learned about owl senses, what we now know about how they hear and what they see and what it's like to fly as an owl. And I'll tell you one thing from your book that I found so interesting that I did not know, which is that dark colored feathers way more than light colored feathers. And that factors into the types of feather patterns that owls have and takes more energy to produce dark colored feathers. And they don't actually absorb calcium very well, even though they're eating bones. I mean, like it's so, again, this is just an exploration of how little I actually know about owls. But I would love for you to tell the listeners some things about what it is like to be an owl. Uh, Yeah, well, they are such amazingly skilled hunters, really, for three main reasons. You know, they have very keen eyesight in dim light. They have extraordinary hearing, and they have this exceptionally quiet flight. And all of these three things really help them in the kind of hunting that they do. So I'm going to start with the 
vision with an owl's eyes. They're huge for their body size. So I like to tell people, you know, if my eyes were in similar proportion to my body as an owl's eyes are to its body, my eyes would be about the size of an orange and they would weigh four pounds. So (laughs) very big eyes they have. And they have tubular eyes that are actually locked in their sockets in a forward gaze like ours are. And that gives them binocular vision, just like we have. And that's a big advantage in uh, zeroing in on their moving prey. Also, their retinas are super sensitive to light, so they can see in very dim light. And owl's pupils, they can actually swell to nearly the entire size of the eye. And that lets in about twice as much light as our human pupils do. And all of these things, their light-collecting cells in their retinas, their pupils, give night hunting owls about 100 times the light sensitivity of a a pigeon. So they have very good night vision. Then their hearing, you know, a lot of owls, they hunt at night, so they're not so much dependent on their eyes. Their eyes work with their ears, but it's really their hearing that allows them to hunt in the night. And I think it was in the 1960s that the famous biologist Roger Payne was the first to show that an owl can actually catch a mouse in the pitch black relying only on sound. And those kinds of owls, I think of barn owls, great gray owls, they really have heads that are designed for listening. You know, they have this flat facial disc that's like a a big external ear. It's kind of like a, a feathered satellite dish. And it collects sound, channels it towards the the owl's ears. And those ears, I should say, they're just holes in the side of of an owl's head. You know, some people think it's the little tufts, the plumicorns on their heads that are their ears, but they're not like mammal ears. Those are actually just for camouflage. But it's what's inside those holes that's just um, gives these owls such incredible sensitivity to sound so they can actually pick up the faintest rustle of a bull or a mouse. They have these really big cochlea, the hearing organ in the brain, and they're kind of super, super long compared with other birds, three or four times the size of other birds. And it gives night hunting owls a sense of hearing that's really almost unequaled in the animal world. So they can pick up just very, very faint noises. And then the final thing that they have is this very quiet flight. Now, if you think about how quiet a hunting owl has to be in order to avoid alerting its prey and also so that they can hear the very soft sounds that that prey makes. And they have these wings and feathers that are designed to hush their flight. They have very big wings in relation to their bodies, kind of like their eyes. So their flight, it's called low wing loading and their flight is very buoyant and slow. So it's quieter. But also it's really the ingenious shape of their wings and their feathers that that squelch sound. So their wings are covered with almost like a what they call velvet. It's these plush fibers. And it prevents the feathers from rustling together the, the way that most birds' feathers do. And uh, it makes them very, very quiet so they can sneak up on their prey. It's almost like when you see somebody, a musical artist recording in a sound booth, how there's like eggshell foam on all of the walls absorbing the sound. It's almost like there's a coating on their wings that absorbs the sound and makes it so that the feathers are not making noise when they're rubbing up against each other. Yeah. And the features of an owl wing are really so brilliant at quieting sound 
that the designers have actually used them in modeling noise reducing structures and things like wind turbine blades, airplanes, you know, even Japan's bullet trains. That's so interesting. You know, if you think about taking human senses and heightening them to the extent that owls have them, it would be incredibly overwhelming for a human. You know what I mean? Our brains would be like, oh, heck no. I do not want to hear this well. Like, I I do not. <laughs> no, okay. imagine hearing all those little rodents. No. Oh, gosh, no. I don't want to hear the little pitter-patter of a fly on the wall. Like, their little <laughs> legs going, do, 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 do. No, I don't want to hear that. Sometimes I feel like I hear too many things during the day, and I get a little overloaded. You know, like, I need to hear nothing for a while. Yes, yes, it's true. And it's amazing. It says a lot about how the brain works, whether it's in the human brain or the owl brain and, and how we tune out what is not relevant to us and tune in on what is, you know, and I think about a an owl like the great gray owl, which can be 30 feet up in a tree and it sort of swivels its head like a, like a satellite dish until it catches sound. And then it will, like a just like a laser, zero in on that sound, and it can pick up the sound of a of a vole tunneling underneath the snow, like a foot and a half deep. Owls way up, comes over, hovers over that area, and then dives into the snow and nails its prey. So it is very, very highly attuned to those sounds that its prey makes. Good for them. I don't want it for me, though. <laughs> Good for them. It's working out for them. I don't want to hear a vole under the snow. Thanks anyway. (laughs) Not helpful. Couldn't sleep. No thanks. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress in our life. Absolutely. It's unavoidable. It's just part of the human experience. But some of us have more than others, and some of us handle it better than others. Some of us really keep it bottled up, and it can start to affect us negatively. I would imagine at some point in your life, you can relate to this, right? And therapy is a safe space to be able to get some of these things off your chest. And that is why so many people find benefit in speaking to a qualified professional. If you're thinking about starting therapy for something like managing your stress, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Sharon today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Sharon. We have all had embarrassing moments where something didn't smell quite right. 
And if you have any children or people in your lives who have stinky toes, stinky feet, and those stinky shoes pile up by the door of your house. And then when people come over, they're like, um, your house smells weird. There's a solution for that. And it is not necessarily spraying down your house with disinfectant. It is taking care of the smell at the source by using Lumi on places like the people in your house's stinky feet. It is a whole body deodorant. It is safe to use anywhere on your body. It was created by a doctor who saw firsthand how stinky feet and other body parts are often misdiagnosed as problems when in reality you could just use a product like Lumi and it would take care of the issue. It has been clinically proven to block odor all day and control odor for up to 72 hours. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, a cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, New customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code SHARON at LumiDeodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit LumiDeodorant.com and use code SHARON. You know, there are, you mentioned in this book, in the book too, that there are hundreds of different types of owls. Yes. And some of them we just have even recently discovered. We think we've discovered all the things and apparently, no, we haven't. I mean, it, this really did blow me away. I mean, first of all, just the diversity of owls living today, it's, it's, it's staggering. There are 260 species and they just range tremendously in size and appearance. You know, you have the biggest owl, which is the, the massive Blackiston's fish owl, and it's about the size of a fire hydrant. It's also kind of wacky looking. It has these tousled ear tufts. And, and then all the way down to the smallest, the tiny elf owl, which is just, just a little nugget of a bird. It's about the size of a small pine cone. Oh my and goodness. Yeah. So tremendous range. And as you say, to the amazement of researchers, really, new species of owls are still turning up. There's one that popped up in the 1970s, high in the Andean mountains of northern Peru, and it's called the long-whiskered owlet. And it really stunned scientists. It's this tiny, bizarre owl, and it's so different from other owls that the scientists actually put it in its own genus, Xenoglox, and that means strange owl in Greek. <laughs> But, you know, as recently as last year, a park ranger found a new species of, of scops owl on the island of, of Principe off the west coast of Africa. So we are still finding birds. I suppose it speaks to how elusive they can be, how mysterious and magical they are, that they're not like, what's up, researchers? You haven't written me down yet. You know, like they perfectly happy not being discovered, clearly. They really are. And, and I think also of a bird like the, the northern sawwit owl, which is a little owl, very elusive, very reclusive almost. And people thought it was very rare until they actually began to capture them in mist nets and then they would band them. They discovered that the northern sawwit owl is, in fact, one of the most common raptors in North America. <laughs> it's just, it's not rare. It's just that it's rarely seen. So these birds really know how to, how to hide out and make themselves scarce. <laughs> it's so interesting. 
one of the things that makes owls unique is the fact that they regurgitate undigestible food. And you can actually, if you're a curious parent or teacher or whatever, you can go online and order owl pellets. First of all, why do owls do that? Where other raptors and other birds of prey don't do that. And you mentioned in the book that like there was a type of dinosaur that did that, (laughs) but it's not like a common thing in the animal kingdom today to just be like, I'm going to eat it all and then I'll puke up what I don't like later. (laughs) That is exactly what owls do. They eat their prey whole, some of their smaller prey. Yeah, they just take it all in. And then the indigestible parts, you know, the fur, the claws, the teeth even, they all get compressed in this pellet in the owl's stomach. And it takes several hours, but eventually the owl will regurgitate it. And and if you watch this process, it doesn't look easy. It looks like it's painful. Sometimes you see owls wincing when they eject one of these pellets because some of them are very large. Large, yes. Yes. I watched a little burrowing owl eject a pellet that looked like it was half its size. And they can't really eat again until they've done this. So it's a very important part of the process. And these pellets actually have a very strong odor. And one of the things that I explored in the book was how scientists are actually using olfactory powers of dogs to locate rare owl species in very remote areas like oh, the Pacific Northwest and in Tasmania. And they have these detective sniffer dogs that are actually trained to locate the pellets that the, the owls disgorge after eating. And the dogs can distinguish between the pellets of different species, and they can smell the the odors they emit. So it's a fascinating way. And some of the studies show that the dogs trained that way could actually detect owls better than some of the normal surveys and, and the dogs could cover a bigger area. So it's an unusual way to look for owls, but it turned out to be very effective because of these pellets. Why do they do it though? Like, does science have an explanation for why owls are just like, I'm going to eat this whole bird and then I'll get rid of what I don't want later, as opposed to other raptors who will sit and like pick the flesh off of their prey? Uh, You know, if you watch a a bald eagle cam and you watch them eat their fish or their uh, other squirrel or whatever, they don't spend time trying to swallow its whole skeleton. Right? But why do owls do that? It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? But I think particularly of the smaller owls, they're prey too. So they don't want to be hanging around taking apart their prey. Mm, Because they'll get eaten by other raptors. Yes, exactly. Including other owls, bigger owls. Harder to figure out the bigger owl question and why they, they would want to eat their prey whole. But it's, you know, it's one of those strange evolutionary paths that these birds took. But it's, you know, you, you talked about buying the pellets online. Those pellets have a tremendous amount of information in them about the owl's diet. And so elementary schools all over the country, you know, take them apart to figure out what an owl might be eating. And it's a very educational exercise. (laughs) It is. You have to get over the fact that it's a dead animal that's been eaten and puked up by an owl. (laughs) Once you get over it, it's interesting. What is owl family life like 
And I, I love how you talk about how nest cams have really impacted our ability to understand what owl families are like. Yeah. So they give us a really intimate view of all those little interactions that are happening at the nest. And those nest cams can run 24-7. So you see all kinds of activity. You see sibling rivalry, you see siblings feeding each other, you see parents bringing food in, you can determine the diet. Owls in general are very good parents. They're very attentive, that female. She sits on that nest brooding the eggs pretty much 24 hours a day. She takes tiny little breaks. She needs to keep the eggs at just the right temperature. But then I I think one of the most sort of charming phases in an owl family life is when the chicks are finally ready to leave the nest and the parents watch over them. But they do something called branching, which is really funny thing to watch. They get out of the nest. They're not ready to fly yet but they want to go exploring. And so they'll pop up and they'll hop from branch to branch. And, you know, sometimes they'll hop long distances and they'll just drop right to the floor of the forest, <laughs> you know, and then they'll they'll sit right back up. Some of them can actually climb vertically back up the tree to the nest. They flap their wings and they hold on with those little sharp talons that they have and they climb right back up the tree. And then the fledging period is also very entertaining because it's not easy to fly like an owl and it it takes some time, but the, the parents feed them through the fledgling period. Then they're out on their own, but it's a fascinating, the life of the nest is fascinating. Also, the kind of courtship that happens with owls when they're, you know, before they actually choose a mate and get together. I I watched uh, what's called the sky dance of the short-eared owl. Truly remarkable. Happens at sunset. The male goes straight up into the air and then he drops and he claps his wings beneath him. Like he's kind of clapping at his own performance, Uh you know, the the female's on the ground and she's watching this, comparing it in her mind with the sky dances of other males that she's seen. And, you know, she's the one who will, he'll decide whether he's a good mate or not. And then some owls court primarily vocally, that little Northern Sawit owl that I mentioned that seemed so rare, but is actually very common. It toots for its mate and it will toot at a hundred 160 times a minute. Sounds like a, a truck backing up <laughs> to try to win, to, to win the mate. And, you know, the successful guys, they get this done in a day or two, but the, the ones that aren't successful have to do this day after day after day, you know, hoot and toot all a night long to try to uh, attract a mate. So it's very laborious, not, not, not an easy life. Mm. Do they partner for life the way, say, like bald eagles do? No, we thought they did until we discovered that owls actually have individual voices. So they have very distinctive idiosyncratic voices that scientists have figured out how to, they're so distinct, they're almost like fingerprints. So they're vocal fingerprints of an individual owl. And once scientists learned this, they could do two things. They could monitor the owl populations much more closely. And also they got this window into their social lives. It's like, oh, now they could keep track of who was pairing up with whom and whether they were actually staying together. 
Well, it turns out that in many species of owls, including great horned owls, Eurasian eagle owls, there's a lot of mate switching going on. One of the scientists said to me, it's like a regular soap opera out there. And she said, (laughs) this is just not supposed to happen because we always thought owls mated for life, but there's a fair amount of hanky-panky and and mate switching going on. Mm. Okay. So does it work like they are competing for mates the female chooses which one she wants. Then do they partner for a period of time while they are sitting on the clutch of eggs, raising the brood? And then they're like, it's been real. I'll see you maybe again someday. (laughs) And then like six months later, they part ways. How does that work? Yes, that's exactly the way it works. And it depends on the species and also on the success of the nest. You know, if a pair is successful at breeding, they may stay together and and through to the next breeding season. If they're not successful, there's a higher rate of so-called divorce when they'll try, they'll move through the the breeding season, but then if it doesn't work, they'll seek out another mate. So it is sort of, I guess I would call it serial monogamy. (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting. And do male owls ever sit on the eggs? Because you do see other raptors where males will sit on the eggs at least for little periods of time as the female permits them to. Yeah. No, I don't think that's a thing in the owl world. The males are very, very good at bringing food to the nest, whether it's just for the female or for the female and the young. And sometimes it requires both male and female to be hunting to feed the young sufficiently. But during that period when when she's on the eggs, he's mostly just trying to get dinner together for everybody. Yeah. Two dinners. I yeah. need two. I need or, to hunt for more. two dinners or right. or five dinners. Yes. <laughs> yeah. How long do owl parents help their fledglings with food? Because learning to hunt is not a simple process. Some of it is instinctive, of course, but like being good at it, being good enough at it to sustain your own self is not not something that you can just be like, well, bye. I've been nice knowing you. Like it's a skill that has to be honed. Yes, it is. And most owls, so it varies by species, but the barred owls, they'll stay with their young for six weeks while they hone their hunting skills and they'll feed them during that time, supplement their feeding. Great horned owls will stay for six months with the ju- juveniles and you know see them through a very long juvenile period. And just as you say, it is not all instinctive. I mean, one of the, the fascinating things I learned about from people that, that actually rehabilitate owls that have been injured, they have been fed the whole time they're in the clinic. Some of these birds are very young. So they go to what's called mouse school. <laughs> to learn how to hunt and it starts with you know the, the the staff putting a mouse in a in a in a sort of bin and the the baby owls have to learn how to catch them but it's not easy i mean they've never had food that moved before and you know sometimes they try to to capture it with their beaks you know and then they realize they have to use their feet their talons so it takes some time to sort out that whole process i think sometimes people forget that like really high level predators, which owls are, they're extremely skilled predators. There are elements of instinct of like, I need to kill that to eat it. But if you think about like mammal predators, they get long periods of time very often with their 
parents who teach them how to be a good jaguar. Here's how you sneak up on, here's how you crawl on a tree branch and then you're going to jump down and get it. And then here's how you kill it really quick. You know, people have to parent that behavior into the young. Yes, this is true. And, you know, we used to think that owls were, you know, kind of all, all of their behavior was instinctive, that it was hardwired. And now we understand, no, 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 that's not the case. They are actually learning throughout their lives. And it, as you say, it, it takes a lot of, a lot of learning to become an adept hunter. And the scientists believe that, you know, one of the signs of, of an intelligent species is this long juvenile period when, Adults are staying with young and maybe demonstrating behaviors that the young birds then, you know, pick up and and learn from. Yeah. You can see that in orca pods and things like that, where they are have multi-generational pods and baby orcas who live with their grandmothers have significant benefits from learning from not just their parents and other adults, but from the grandmothers and the matriarchs of these pods. So you can, and of course, orcas are extremely intelligent. So that fits exactly what you're saying that like, there's a, a wisdom that comes from being around other adults for a period of time. Listen, I know if you pick up any kind of beauty magazine or you follow an influencer, there's like a new skincare product every single day of the week. And it can be really difficult to know which ones to even try, like which one is worth your money. And if you're tired of cycling through ineffective skincare trends and overcomplicated routines, you might be excited to know that one of today's sponsors is OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy. No complicated routines just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to switch off the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. I especially like the eye cream. It's not too thick where you feel like it's going to clog all your pores, but it goes on really, really nicely under makeup. For a limited time, you'll get an exclusive 15% off your first OneSkin purchase using the code SHARON when you check out at oneskin.co. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O. Try OneSkin and enjoy younger, healthier skin without all the extra steps. That's oneskin.co, code SHARON. 
You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. What exactly does an owl know, Jennifer? <laughs> <laughs> well, that is the, the $60,000 question, but they know a great deal. I mean, obviously, they're superbly adapted. They know how to fit into their environments. They know how to hunt skillfully. But a lot of people ask me, well, how smart are they? You know, what in terms of that kind of knowledge. And the, the thing that I will say is that, you know, all birds are far more intelligent than we imagined. You know, their brains, they're, they're organized in a different way f- from ours. But what matters in the intelligent brain is the density of neurons. And the brains of birds turn out to be very, very dense with neurons. So they're highly efficient. And the other thing I'll say is, you know, the, the science of understanding the minds of other animals, it's really in its infancy. We're just beginning to understand it. We kind of see intelligence through our own lens. Yes. But there's a, a growing awareness, I think, that there are different kinds of intelligence and different ways of knowing in the animal world, in the owl world, that may be hard for us to conceive of and, and certainly are hard for us to measure. So I think, you know, owls, they, they may not be smart in the same way that, I don't know, parrots and corvids are smart, the same ways that we're smart. It's kind of being able to solve technological problems. But they do have their own varieties of expertise, but they're just more subtle than some other kinds of birds and different from us. So, and they're very, they turn out to be very flexible in their behavior and nuanced. And as I said, they learn throughout their lives. All of those are signs of there's a lot going on upstairs that we just may not be very good at measuring it yet. So it's a, it's an open question and I think a fascinating one. Absolutely. Yeah, what an owl knows. We are just now beginning to understand what they know. And you mentioned corvids and parrots who tend to be much more social birds and they can demonstrate their intelligence in ways that make sense to humans. Mimicking calls, learning to talk. I brought you this shiny thing. Oh, you liked it? I brought you this other thing. I'll come back tomorrow. Oh, I, you ba- left me a present? That's nice. You know, like this sort of social interaction. Corvids know how to play with each other. They engage in play for fun. It it makes sense to the human mind. And so it seems easier for us to gauge exactly like, wow, these are really, really smart birds. But I I love thinking about how there are types of intelligence that we're not even aware of. We're not even aware of what types of intelligence animals have. And we're not, we're not even able to measure all of the different types of senses and the ways in which they use their senses and the ways in which that information is integrated into their brain. It's just, it's such a fascinating and emerging field of study. 
It really is. And I think it's one of the fascinating things is just understanding that we live in one reality and there's this very, very rich other kind of reality, you know, that we're just beginning to scratch the surface of. And I think owls are a beautiful example of that. Mm, They really are. Have you read An Immense World by Ed Young? Yes. That's a great example of like how animals literally live in a different universe than we do. Yeah, they have this, we see this little wedge of reality. And when I wrote a book called The Bird Way about the, the way that birds see color, but they have the capacity to see ultraviolet light. And it's not just that they see light in a part of the spectrum that we can't see, it's that they actually see ultraviolet light baked into all the colors they see. So they're just seeing this universe of color that we can't perceive. And, you know, that's the tip of the iceberg, I think. And, you know, think about what an owl hears. We're just beginning to get a little window on that. One of the fascinating facts in the book that came from an anatomist who was studying the way that the owl's brain is wired. And he said, there's a part of the hearing nerve that goes to the visual part of the brain. So he said, maybe that means that owls actually see sound. So there may be like a a mouse that's rustling in the dark, kind of flashing at them in a visual way. Just such a fascinating mystery. Mm -hmm. And of course, your sensory organs are gathering information, but it's up to your brain to interpret what that information means. And we can study the sensory organs of all these animals, but how their brain interprets the information that the sensory organ has gathered is what is so difficult to know and what is so fascinating to learn more about. And that's exactly the question. What does a bat know? What does an owl know? It's that, as you say, that, you know, what's going on in the brain with the information that, that they're taking in. And, you know, we take in all kinds of information that we're never aware of. So, you know, it all depends on what you're attending to and how the brain is sorting it out. Mm. Jennifer, this was so good. This was so interesting. I absolutely loved what an owl knows. I loved talking to you about it. We could probably talk for three more hours about like, well, this bird. Yeah, that's right. That bird does do that. Like we could probably be here all day talking about birds and owls. I just loved it. Thank you for your work and thank you for being here. Oh, it was such a delight. Thank you so much for having me. You can buy Jennifer Ackerman's book, what an owl knows wherever you buy your books. You can also order on bookshop.org if you want to support independent bookstores. You can follow Jennifer on social media at Jennifer Ackerman Author and also visit her website, jenniferackermanauthor.com. Thanks so much for joining us. The show is hosted and executive produced by me, Sharon McMahon. Our audio producer is Jenny Snyder. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you could leave us a review or share this episode on social media, those things help podcasters out so much. Thanks for being here today.